that are to the right-hand side. I'm going to ask you, and this may cause some disruption in your viewing of the live stream, but to refresh your page just in case, because I think we may have added another link or so. And if not, once the sermon is posted under the sermons category at the top of the page, you will find this link there. All of these links deal with printouts that I'm asking you to print out so that you can work with the text of Romans. I want to be very clear about what we're doing here. We are talking about what it is to live the Christ life, and we need to get very basic with this and very thorough with this, and we need to be very knowledgeable. I I say this, and I don't mean to sound crass or, or horrible in any way, but there are enough ignorant Christians running around our planet right now Uh, and we cannot afford to do so. And our focus is going to be uh, both uh, last week, we we got a little taste of it. We're going to hunker down on it today and really hone in on it today. And then also in two weeks after Resurrection Sunday, we are still going to pick up this theme, and we're going to talk about everything that is tied to it uh, that has been done in the idea of justification by faith. And I think that it's important for us to understand this, and and I don't shy away from this statement at all. In fact, I sat down and I carefully wrote it out to make sure that I wouldn't be misunderstood. If a Christian cannot explain justification by faith alone, they are not living a victorious life. Position in Christ is the only means to a fruitful practice. And we will develop this concept more and more as we spend all of this time between Romans 3 and the end of Romans 8 dealing with this situation. Now, no surprise to you, I'm probably going to preach long today. That's okay. I've actually gotten reports that some people shut me off when they don't want to hear me anymore, and that's fine. May God's will be done. But I'm going to ask you to take out your pages with Romans chapter 3, Uh, starting with 19 through 31, and we are just going to look at five verses today. We're going to deal a lot with the matter of sin. We're going to look at ideas of sin. I'm going to ask you to mark up this text. If you don't have these handouts printed out, that's fine. I ask for you to jot down the verse references. But it is vitally important that you see some of the overview things that we're going to tackle today because as we progress forward in the study, they're going to flesh out and they're going to become exceedingly evident to you about why this is such an important subject of sin and we are sinners and that we have sins in relation to justification by faith alone in the person of Jesus Christ alone his atoning work on the cross, and what righteousness means as far as we are concerned in our relationship with it. Uh, Hold on to your hats. We're going to do a lot of fun things here. Everybody get your coffee warmed up right now so that we can walk forward. If people need anything in the world right now, they need one thing. They need the Creator to pronounce them not guilty. I don't want to dismiss this pandemic that we're dealing with this sickness that we have going across our country. Uh, It's amazing how we move from one sickness to another. We rarely talk about AIDS anymore. We're rarely talking about HPV anymore. We're rarely talking about H1N1 anymore. And it seems like that we just want to hopscotch along to the next thing that's going to threaten our lives. The greatest thing that threatens our lives is the fact that we are born sinners into this world and that we sin actively against a holy God. That is the pandemic of the human race. And so we need a solution to this problem. And the only solution that suffices is that we need the one who is over all things, the Lord of glory, Yahweh Elohim, the creator of all things, to pronounce us not guilty in his sight because he is the judge. Paul gives a scathing indictment against the human race if you were to look at the first three chapters of Romans up until the time that we are dealing with verse 20. The Bible is speaking, is crying out to us about our sin problem. It makes us aware of it so that we will understand our need. In fact, I found a really great quote from Watchman Nee that I want to share with you real quick. It says, God wants to prove to us that we are sinners. Without proving this to us, we may forget about our true self. 
This is why Romans 1 through 3 enumerates all those sins. It is to show us that we are sinners. And after so many facts are presented there, we are proven to be sinners. Our optimism is too often in ourselves. We talk a lot about self-esteem. We talk a lot about pride. We talk a lot about school pride, have some pride kind of idea. We encourage one another in our own self-worth. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as we're thinking about it soberly. And if we do not have the starting point of our condition before a holy God, and the fact that we are born in sin, that we are born in the vein in Adam, that we are born in the wrong family from the get-go, when we should have been in God's family from the very beginning as the way he created it, then we are not assessing ourselves soberly. We are not thinking of ourselves according to reality. And Paul goes to great lengths in Romans to fix that situation in our thinking. So let's read verses 19 through 23 here and, and watch how this pans out. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you remember, starting in verse 9, the law condemns. That is the ministry of the law. It is true. It is righteous. It is holy. It is written by God. And because that's the situation, it's a means of him speaking authoritatively over our lives. The law can never excuse our sin. It can never renew us as people. It can never bring us to life. It can only condemn us to death. That's what the law does. And so we find ourselves in a very destitute situation. The totality of humanity is guilty. And it speaks to us, notice that it says in verse 19, so that every mouth may be closed. In other words, in, in one, one commentator, uh, his name is, is Mool, Bishop Mool, he wrote it this way, the law drags us into God's presence as guilty before him. It lets us know. It testifies against us. It stands on the witness stand, and it sides with righteousness and truth because it is righteousness and truth and says they're sinners, they're guilty. All the world. So now we're accountable to God. We're answerable to him because only he is the judge. And why is that? Verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Notice this. Works are usually the human means to accomplish something or to get it done. Notice that the standard is the law. Notice that the problem is the flesh. The flesh will never suffice. And notice our need is that in his sight, we need to be justified. What did I say at the very beginning? If we need anything, we need to be pronounced not guilty by the creator of all things. Now, there are only three people, groups, that exist in this world. There are Gentiles, which is everybody that's not a Jew, and that means that Jews are the second type of people in this world. And then there is the church of God that has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. The reason why there are only three people is because both Gentiles and Jews are unsaved. They would be in a category of unsaved people. The church of God is the category of saved or redeemed people, justified people. And what's interesting about the church of God is that that separation point between Jew and Gentile is completely obliterated by the cross of Christ. It brings those two divided parties into one because it brings them both into one body with one one head, by one spirit, in one baptism, to be the body of Christ. And so those distinctions are removed and completely tossed out of the way. I don't know how we want to say that, but gone uh, from sight in that situation. Now, here's what's interesting about this is it would help us to reflect for a moment about the idea of what sin looks like in both the categories of Jew 
and Gentile. And I'm going to ask you to put your finger, if you have your Bible out, Romans 3, if you have your paper, set them aside for a second and take your Bible uh, and turn with me to Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. If you move over to Philippians chapter 3, we're going to see an interesting passage because Paul is reflecting back on his time before he knew the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to show you something very interesting about the sin of the Jews and how they are prone to religiosity and in, in trying to keep the law in order to earn the merit of God. And so look at chapter 3 of Philippians, verse 2. It says, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. And that would be those who are legalistic or the Judaizers would be the idea. It's a religious system amongst the Jewish people. The Pharisees would be probably heavily linked to that in the idea. And and the false circumcision here is Paul's actually um, doing a play on words here about those who think that they're accepted by God because they've somehow mutilated themselves with the cutting of their foreskins. In verse 3, 4, we are the true circumcision. And the idea there is, is we are the ones that are truly accepted by God. We have the true mark of God's uh, relationship in our lives because of Christ. Notice this, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God, that's something they don't have, and glory in Christ Jesus, that's something they don't have, and put no confidence in the market church, flesh, none, no confidence in the flesh. The interesting thing about Jewish religiosity that goes on is that they are devoid of the Spirit of God, they do not have it. They do not have access to the glory of Christ Jesus. It is not on their radar screen. But also, they are constantly propelled forward by the flesh and what they do with the flesh. I think it would be interesting to sit down and talk with the Jew who spends hours at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, praying with their hand against the wall and kissing that wall, not recognizing that the liberation of their Messiah already came 2,000 years ago. That's a frightening thought to me to think that we could somehow pray long enough in order to earn salvation. You would never know if you prayed enough. So notice here, as qualified by what we saw in Romans 3.20, the flesh does not suffice. Put no confidence in the flesh. Verse 4, now watch this. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. Now Paul's going to tell us something very interesting. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Now, you might say, good grief, how did Paul get so arrogant here? He's not being arrogant. He is painting for you a picture of a sober appraisal of himself and his flesh and how he conducted his life. Now, watch what he says, verse 5. Number one, he circumcised on the eighth day. That's in keeping with the law. Number two, of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. Number three, of the tribe of Benjamin. He knows where his lineage is from. Number four, he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Number five, as to the law, a Pharisee. So he was high ranking in the officials of the Jewish people. Verse six, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He was striking out against those people who might want to claim that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. And number seven, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Notice that. He could actually look at the law of God and say, I was striving to keep it at every point and place of turning. As far as Paul's unregenerate flesh record was concerned, it's impeccable. And what's interesting is, is it could not save because as any good Bible reader would know, you can't just stop at verse six. You got to move on to verse seven. But whatever things were gain to me, were an advantage to me is what the Greek word means. Those things I have counted as loss, as disadvantage, as damage for the sake of Christ. So notice that if the Jew is left up to himself on how to attain righteousness, the flesh is the means to go, to try harder, to work, to do better to make something of yourself. Uh, We often run victim of that in America, being your own man and the idea of what constitutes what makes up a man. Uh, It is not 
the idea of trying harder and doing better to be found blameless in your flesh because when Christ comes in, he decimates every boasting and every merit because he is perfect righteousness, and that is something that a Jew does not have. Now, to show you a contrasting viewpoint, again, we're not picking on people here. We're all sinners. But I want to move to Acts 17. This is one of my favorite passages. And in Acts 17, we deal with what it looks like for the Gentiles. We find what the Gentiles are engrossed in when left up to themselves. Acts chapter 17, if you turn back there, please, starting in verse 16. Says here, Acts seventeen sixteen. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, and he's waiting for Silas and Timothy at Athens, his spirit was being provoked. He was being agitated or stirred greatly within him, as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews, and with God fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Notice, didn't matter who it was. And also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. So you've got the local smart guys. The Epicurean were the materialists of that day, and they didn't believe in an afterlife. Uh, The Stoics were your pantheists, and they believed that there were divine principles found in nature and in humans, and that moral excellence would ultimately win the day. Wrapped up in philosophical garbage is essentially what it is. But notice, this is the best that Gentile unregenerate minds could do. And it's still considered part of the flesh because of the mind working in the situation, regardless of how philosophical it is. Notice they were conversing with him, verse 18. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? And others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching, notice this, Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. Now, that's very interesting. Paul gets a bigger audience. This is actually what's known as Mars Hill. Getting a bigger audience for a preacher is every preacher's dream. Saying, may we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming. For you're bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now, watch this, because this reveals the unregenerate Gentile mind and the human condition that they're found in. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. It's a philosophical hodgepodge. They're engrossed with idolatry and pagan worship. Remember the idols everywhere that actually stirred Paul's spirit to begin speaking to everyone he found. And what you find out is they're so inside their head trying to make sense of life apart from one almighty creator. They just can't do it. The pagan mind does not work. So notice, sinners by birth, sinners by choice. In fact, sin is the great problem that we deal with, even when you're redeemed. And I want to use this as a is a section in order to segue us from the idea of our total guilt because the law stands in condemnation of us, that our flesh will never suffice in justifying us. But justification is what we need, and I want to identify the sin problem that we're dealing with. And and so I put together uh, three slides. If they look hokey to you, don't blame Mitch. He didn't have anything to do uh, with the way that they were going to look in this situation. Uh, so, so don't hold him accountable. Uh, this is completely me putting this together. If you get the opportunity to read the first chapter of Watchman Nee's book called The Gospel of God, or the first chapter in his book, The Normal Christian Life, those first chapters, please understand, I don't agree with everything that Watchman Nee espouses by any means, but he's done a very good job in identifying the difference between sins, plural, and sin, singular. So I'm going to do the best that I can in my ability of reading this minuscule PowerPoint that I see here. We need to know the difference between sins and sin. Number one, sins being plural, and it's important that we recognize that. And again, let me, let me put a little caveat here. This is all determinative upon context. Context determines meaning. Okay, so it's important for us to understand, and you'll find some instances of this. But by and large, it's the countless offenses that are committed daily by an individual in thoughts, words, and deeds that are offensive to the holy creator God of all things. That's important for us to understand. It is the actual actions that we commit that are considered offensive to the creator. 
Uh, it is, I don't know how to explain that. Um, it, it's the idea of um, uh, when we lie, when we steal, everything that we do to violate the Ten Commandments. It's the actual actions that take place. And sins, plural, concerns itself with the idea of justification and righteousness because sins need to be forgiven. That's the problem with sins. And we're going to see some of these distinctions and how we set them apart in just a second. Now, the reason why I don't use the word salvation here, and if you notice the verse references I have for you up there, Romans 3, 21 to 5, 8, the reason why I don't use sins or sorry, I don't use the word salvation in this situation, is because Paul doesn't use the word salvation in that section between 321 and 58. Salvation in Romans deals more with the Christian life, the Christ life, and how we live it. It does not deal with the idea of our acceptance before God. It's a completely separate subject, and Paul makes that distinction under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not me. Now looking at the next part here, when we speak of sin in the singular... It is the solitary principle that resides in every person that compels and attracts one to commit sins. We would sometimes call this the sin nature, or we would say it's it's derived from original sin within us. And it's important for us to understand this. Sins, plural, are not just committed out of nowhere. They actually come from a place of origin. And the origin for where sins are committed by the members of our body, whether it be our thoughts, whether it be our words, uh, actions, whatever it is that we happen to have that have sins being manifested, comes from one intrinsic point of sin, the sin principle that resides in each and every one of us. When When Romans speaks of the idea of sin in the singular, it concerns itself with justification, salvation or sorry, sanctification, salvation. And notice that sanctification is from Romans 5.12 to 8.39 that's dealt with in the book. Now, before we move forward and see the distinctions between this, I'm going to ask if you've printed all these papers out to take a moment and to mark some things with me. Uh, If not, you can either write down these references on a piece of paper, or you can go through your Bible and you can mark these references in your Bible. What I've done in order to help me out with this is I've gotten a green highlighter. Um, I figure green for jealousy, that's a pretty good sin that we all deal with at some point. So why not highlight these words in dealing with those sections? And so I want to show you something interesting, is that in Romans 3.20, if you look there first, we see that the, from the law comes the knowledge of sin. You want to mark that is the idea of the knowledge of sin, sin as a principle, sin and what we're dealing with. And now we step into the plurality of sins, starting in in Romans 3.21 section. Look down at verse 25. If you look down at verse 25, you'll find the word sins. Don't worry about what the passage says right now. I just want you to mark where it says sins, plural, in in 3.25. If you move on down through there, you'll notice in 4.7. You have the word sins in the plural. Just mark that it's there. We're, again, as we go through every one of these verse by verse, we're going to deal with these situations when we get there. You also see in the next verse, verse 8, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. You want to deal with that as well. Mark that as well. Moving on, moving on, moving on. You will have to get into verse chapter 5, and you're dealing with verse 8, that while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. You want to mark that as well. And the reason why I have up on the board that it stops at 5.8 and begins again at 5.12 is because verses 9, 10, and 11 are transitional impulse thinking that moves from dealing with sins that we've committed against God to actually beginning to address the sin principle that resides in every person. And so now get ready to to mark this. If you look in chapter 5, verse 12, you have sin, sin, and sinned all in one verse there. Three times you have it marked. In verse 13, you have twice the occurrence of sin, singular. In verse 14 of chapter 5, you have sinned. You want to mark that. In chapter 5, verse 16, you have sinned. Again, if I'm going too fast for you, that's the great thing about being able to listen to the sermon again at a later time. 
You have sinned there in verse 16. Move down to verse 19 of chapter 5. Notice, all men were made sinners. You want to mark that one. Verse 20, but where sin increased, singular. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, you want to mark sin in verse 21. Moving into chapter 6, look at verse 1. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Mark sin. Chapter 6, verse 2. How shall we who died to sin mark that? Mark the word sin. Gosh, I cannot wait to get into all this stuff with you guys. It's like chomping at the bit here. Uh, Go down to verse 6. Chapter 6, verse 6. That our body of sin... Mark that. Notice down at the end of that verse, we would no longer be slaves to sin. Mark that. Verse 7. For he who has died is freed from sin. Notice it's all singular. It's talking about the indwelling sin as a master over us. No longer. Verse 10. For death, uh, for the death that he died, he died to sin. Notice it's in the singular. Mark that. Verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Mark that one. Verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Verse 13, the body of sin. You want to mark that. Verse 14, for sin shall not be master over you. Verse 15, what then shall we sin? Uh, Moving on to verse 16 in the middle of that verse. Sin resulting in death. Verse 17, we were slaves of sin. Verse 18, having been freed from sin. You might say, good grief, Jeremy, you're going really fast. I can't necessarily mark all this. We're going to get to it. You don't have to worry about it, okay? I want to give you an opportunity to mark these now and see what Paul does here, just in how he structured the letter. Chapter 6, verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, look at verse 22, but now having been freed from from sin, singular. Chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. Moving into chapter 7, verse 5, for while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions. Go down to verse 7 of chapter 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. And then notice you've got it again. I would not have come to know sin except through the law. The law tells us of sin, just as it said in 3.20. Look at chapter 7, verse 8. But sin, taking the opportunity. Notice at the end of verse 8, sin is dead. Verse 9, sin became alive. Just use your finger and skim and scan. Verse 11, for sin, taking an opportunity. Go down to verse 13. You've got four mentions here in this one verse. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Mark all four of those instances in verse 13. Verse 14. Notice, sold into bondage to sin. Verse 17, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. How about chapter 7, verse 20, but sin which dwells in me. Notice it's the principle of sin. Verse 21, I find then the principle that evil is present in me. That principle there is capital S-I-N in the singular. Go down to verse 25 of chapter 7, the very last few words, the law of sin. Chapter 8, verse 2, the law of sin. Chapter 8, verse 3, an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Two mentions. Chapter 8, verse 10, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin. Notice the flesh is dead and sin is the reason, singular, sin. Moving on through here, let's see, I think that's it. I think those are all the occurrences that we have of that. And so I bring that up to you because I want you to see the difference of that Paul is dealing with regarding justification and righteousness of the acts that we have committed against a holy God. And then he moves into what the cause of those acts are being the principle of sin that resides in every person. Now let's see some distinctions between this uh, on the screen if you'll notice. Notice you've got plural in the left-hand category, and you've got singular in the right-hand. 
The left hand deals with acts that we commit. The right hand deals with the original sin nature that is within us. Sins regards one's conduct, but sin regards one's flesh. Sins are acts committed, but sin is a principle within. Sins is transgressions that we commit, but sin is a law or a truth in our members. Sins are related to our doing. Sin is related to our being. Sins is what we do. We are sinning. We commit sins is the idea. But sin is what we are. We are sinners. With sins, it's in the realm of conscience. In other words, we feel bad whenever we commit those things. But with sin, it is in the realm of the life. It is a constant in our reality. It's something that we have to deal with because it's always there as long as we're in this flesh. With sins, plural, it's considered on a case-by-case basis. We have frequency of sins and we have occurrences of sins. But with the singular of sin, it's considered as a whole. It's a solitary truth about us. Our sins are committed before God, but our sin is an issue that's dealt with inside of us, inside of man. Notice it says here that sins are related to one's justification, as we spoke of earlier. Don't just say salvation. Tell me what type of salvation you're talking about, and it's justification. But sin as a principle is related to one's sanctification. Now, again, if you don't get these, Mitch is going to have them up with the sermon after he posted it later. You can go through and look at these. Sins deals with having peace with God. But the idea of dealing with sin, the sin principle, is having the peace of God. And there's a very big difference. Sins is your Romans 5.1. Dealing with sin is your Romans 8.39 type of attitude, or your 8.28, Romans 8.28 type of attitude. Sins, plural, is a matter of acceptance before God. But sin, as a principle, is a matter of overcoming those things, and you can only do that by the Spirit. You put to death the deeds of the flesh, that is, the sin. We're going to get to all of that. Sins, being plural, is man's ways and choices. Sin as a principle is man's nature and motivations. Sins, if you were to put it figuratively, would be considered the fruit, but sin as a principle would be considered the tree. Sins is the need of forgiveness. That's what we need for sins. We need forgiveness. But with sin, the need is we need to be delivered from that sin nature, that sin principle in us. And the last one that's probably most important that divides these sections I want you to see is sins as acts are dealt with by the blood of Christ. Christ deals with sins. He pays for sins. But sin is a principle that resides in everyone, even believers after coming to faith in Christ still sin. That is something that has to be dealt with by crucifixion of the flesh by taking up our cross and crucifying the flesh with its sinful desires, by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and not gratifying the desires of our sinful flesh. The sin principle deals with the flesh. Those are the distinctions, and I want you to see that. Now, why is that important? Because that's what the law deals with. The law points out sins. If you notice in the Ten Commandments, it's speaking of attitudes, actions, thoughts, deeds, those types of things that are against God. And so the law, just in those 10 sections there, or those 10 individual verses, serve as a condemnation on our, our person. Again, it never excuses us. It never renews us. It never brings us to life. It only sentences us to death. And so now this is when we move into the glorious doctrine of justification. I cannot begin to say enough good things about the doctrine of justification. It is the crux of the entire Christian life. I actually wish we would stop using the word salvation and we would start talking about justification because of how pivotal and important it is for the believer in Christ to understand that. And it's not that salvation is a bad word, but we've turned it into a generic coverall that's really lost all of its meaning. And when we talk about justification, we are talking about a punch that cannot be denied. And this is what puts us into these beautiful verses of Romans 3.21 and 22. But now, 
And I love it because it's a point in time apart from the law. Now, remember, is the law good? Yes. Is it righteous? Yes. Is it holy? Yes. The failure is in our ability to keep it. And since we cannot keep it, we cannot incur a righteousness of our own. So because we cannot incur a righteousness of our own, God has made righteousness possible apart from the law in any way. The law has no part in justification, no part. The law condemns and tells us that we are sinners beyond compare or reason and that we have no excuse before a holy God. But righteousness, the very righteousness of God, and I think that's important for us to understand. This isn't a second-class righteousness. This isn't the righteousness that was only available at the Dollar Tree and you couldn't get it at a much higher department store or something like that. This is the very righteousness of God. It is righteous on his level because it is Christ's righteousness. It is now manifested apart from the law. It's been revealed, it's been publicly exposed, it's been made known, it's been shown in some way. And notice that it says after that, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The idea of a witness is where we get the English word martyr from. It is someone who's willing to testify of a situation, to confirm that something is true, uh, to bring an affirmation or a validation about a statement, and, and affirming that it is correct, actually being pro that concept. Well, that's what this is. This manifestation of God's righteousness finds that the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, has constantly pointed and championed towards this purpose. And I want you to mark it well, verse 22. Even the righteousness of God, notice that Paul had to bring it up twice in this sentence so we know exactly what we're dealing with, through, there's the channel, there's the means of appropriation, faith in Jesus Christ. Let's talk about this for just a second. Jesus Christ is the object of our faith. Now, I don't say object to demean his purpose at all. I'm saying that he is what we are placing our faith in. Faith, the Greek word pistis, simply means conviction. You are convinced that it is true. Some people have used the word persuaded, uh, but with our, our our modern understanding of that, we may not fully grasp what that means, but to be convinced of something, to understand that the chair that you are sitting in would definitely hold you, you were convinced when you sat down in it. You didn't test it first, you didn't wiggle it around to make sure it was going to do it, you plopped down and you joined us for today. You were convinced. It's a conviction that someone has, and that conviction is not on a scale or a level of whether or not it's genuine conviction, quality conviction, heavy conviction, light conviction. It has nothing to do with that. It is not dealing with different degrees of faith. You either believe or you do not believe. What is important about faith is the object in which you are believing. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because God's righteousness is found in Jesus Christ. Therefore, he is righteousness. That's important to understand. It's not just that Jesus is righteous. We would gauge all that by reading through the Gospels and say, yes, he was a righteous man, and we would equate that with deeds. No, he is righteousness because that's who he is in his person. If he never performed one deed on earth whatsoever, he would still be righteous in his person. His deeds were just a manifestation of the righteousness that was already intrinsic of him. Now notice, it's through this righteousness has been manifested, revealed through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Notice that is the condition in place. Faith is simply by the channel, or is simply the channel of which God's righteousness is appropriated to us. And what we call that is imputed righteousness. Now, don't get all messed up on these $5 words, but it's important for Christians to understand them. Again, you cannot grow in your faith, and you will not be victorious over sin if you do not understand the idea of justification by faith alone and the imputed righteousness of Christ. It is impossible. The word imputed means to be credited 
to your account. So if any of you have ever heard me teach before, you're familiar with this illustration, get up, go to the restroom for a second or whatever, and then come back when I'm done with it. But imagine that you have this bank account at the local bank, and this bank account is full of dirt, slime, cobwebs, bugs, roaches, everything that's nasty and gross about life. It's all in your account because we're sinners, and that's what our account looks like before a holy God. Now, it just so happens that Jesus Christ banks at the same place that you do. And because Jesus banks there, the banker can look into his account, and what they see in Jesus's account is overflowing and bursting and glorious and perfection. He is rich beyond compare. They can't even put a number on it, how rich and boiling over he is. At the moment of faith, you hear the gospel and you respond in belief When you believe in the gospel, there is a connecting wire that is automatically plugged from Jesus's infinite bank account into our completely bankrupt bank account. And now whenever the banker looks into your bank account, he now sees everything that is in Jesus's bank account accredited to, credited to you. Now notice this is a righteousness that is imputed, credited to you. It is not imparted to you. The idea that righteousness has been imparted to you or that you are made righteous is a Catholic doctrine. And they see justification as a process, not an instantaneous event, not as a forensic declaration. It's important to recognize the difference. It's not that we are made righteous. We are not. We are not made righteous. We still have this sin nature within us. We don't necessarily get progressively better in ourselves because our flesh amounts to nothing. Remember what we saw in Philippians. Even Paul considered that the flesh would not suffice in his situation. And so now that we have this great imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ to our account, God sees us as he sees Christ. That is so important for us to understand. It is not that we've had some magnificent inner moral change that has taken place. It is God's act of announcing us as not guilty in the halls of of eternity. And why are we not guilty? Because we never did anything wrong? No, that's not the situation at all. Is it because uh, we've, we've been able to pull together something of our own so that God would look favorably on us? No, it has nothing to do with that at all. It has everything to do with the fact that he now sees us through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is vitally important for us to get. Let me give you some definitions that go on here of justification. This is Lewis Sperry Chafer. Divine justification is the decree or public acknowledgement on the part of God that the believer whom he sees perfected with respect to standing, notice that's the position, being in Christ is justified in his sight. It is obvious that none are actually justified until they believe, but provisionally the righteous ground upon which they could be justified when they do believe was secured once for all by Christ in his death. Jesus Christ has died for the sins of the world, and because he has forgiven those sins, the grounds of justification before God being declared righteous are now made available to all who believe the gospel. This is uh, what I have listed probably as quote number two on Proclaim, but if you want to see it up there, this is Miles Stanford. He says, the meaning of justification is to pronounce righteousness, not to make righteous. What is imputed is not, in fact, imparted. To be justified means that the believer is viewed in Christ as righteous and is treated as such by God. Now, everybody understand this, mark this, pay attention to this. So many people that, are, that have been believers for years run around asking the question, is God mad at me? Is God mad at me? Is God mad at me? Let me tell you emphatically, no, God is not mad at you because God is not mad at his son. And you and I as believers are in his son. He treats us, he treats you, he treats me as he treats his son. 
He does not treat us differently. We are so unified. We are such in union with Christ when we respond to the gospel that we are inseparable from Christ, spiritually speaking. And God does not see our sin because all he sees is Christ. We are not made righteous. We are able to be credited with the righteousness that belongs to Christ alone. And since we are in union with him, we are seen as having the perfect righteousness of God that is found only in the person of Jesus Christ. It says here, until we clearly see the positional perfection of our justification in Christ, our conception of and faith in all other aspects of our position will be out of focus. In other words, we have to understand justification by faith. If this is a new concept to you, I encourage you to get a copy of The Complete Green Letters by Miles J. Stanford because it speaks over and over about our position in Christ, and it points you to all of the scriptures that deal with our position in Christ. Until we are affirmed in our position, we will not grow in our relationship with Christ. Now, just so you know, we have 18 copies of that book available for distribution right now. And if you will email into office at gbcportage.com, we will try to get those in the mail and to your door so that you can begin reading through them. They are used copies. That was a good way to get them cheap. But they're awesome, awesome works that will, will take you quite a while to sort through and deal with the scripture passages. If you could see my copy right now in front of me, it's all marked up and highlighted everywhere, and I could stand to spend more copy, uh, more, more time looking at my copy to point me to the scripture so that my mind will be renewed with this idea. Going to the other quote by Stanford that I have here, it says, Every Christian has been positioned forever in the risen Lord by spiritual birth. We've been born again. When you believe, you're born again. It says here, But only the believer who knows grows. That's important. It is faith in the facts of our position that give us the daily benefits of growth in our condition. If the believer is not clearly aware of the specific truths of the word, he cannot exercise the necessary faith for growth and service. He can only seek his resources in the realm of self, and that self would be the flesh. Folks, let me tell you, we have no resources in and of ourselves. Everything that we draw off of to live this life, to deal with our present situation that we're looking at, is already found in the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we are neglecting that storehouse of wealth and grace in order to get us through this time, there's no wonder why we're depressed. There's no wonder why we're discouraged, why we feel like we're failing, why we feel like life amounts to nothing, is because we have a limit. We are finite. And it doesn't go beyond us. We can't conjure more good thoughts or good vibes in order to be better understanding of our place. Is exercise good for us? Yes, it is. You can exercise all you want. You'd still be a part of righteous thinking, uh, apart from, excuse me, righteous thinking, if you are not looking at the position that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we sit here and we think about the idea of the righteousness of God and it being a positional fact. His death is the grounds for justification. When Jesus died on the cross, some people might ask, you know, if you're not familiar much with what's going on with the Bible, you know that Jesus died, but you're not for sure why. Jesus died to provide a grounds to where not only we could be forgiven of sin, that's the negative taken away. Our sin is taken away from us. It's a subtraction that takes place. But the addition is a right standing before God, a full acceptance before God, that he sees us favorably because of his son. I've got a quote here from Earl Rodmacher. It says here, when a person is persuaded of the genuineness of the offer of salvation and believes in Christ, at that moment he is clothed in the righteousness provided by Christ, so that his righteousness becomes his very own, so that Jesus' righteousness becomes our very own. God legally pronounces him justified. God subtracts the penalty of sin and adds the standing of righteousness. The believer then has an official standing 
as a member of the royal family, clothed in the robe of Christ's righteousness. Do you realize that you're clothed this morning? If you've believed in Christ, His very righteousness encompasses your standing before God. It is holy, it is pure, it is fully accepted in Christ. And what's amazing is there's only one condition, believe. Notice it says there, for all those who believe, who are convinced that Jesus Christ has died for their sins, risen from the grave. That's how he supplied these things for us. Well, notice it says here at the end of verse 22, for there is no distinction. There is no difference. There is no discrimination in this situation as far as the world is concerned. And the provision, I think it's important, not just the fact that we're all sinners, not that we're all in the same boat of sin, but there is no difference or discrimination. There are no privileged segments regarding the means of righteousness. Christ's death is for all people if they would simply believe. Why is that? For all have sinned. All are sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, being a sinner, being guilty, is what qualifies you to be a recipient of justification. That's the qualification that puts you in position to receive that truth. What's interesting is there's nothing to be earned there. It's just everything that we are. So being born into Adam, being born in Adam, being born into sin, being a sinner by birth and also a sinner by choice, we find ourselves in a situation where we've fallen short of the glory of God. Now, there's been a lot of debate about what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? Well, number one, all things in all history is going to culminate in his glory. But I think this points back to a specific point in time. And I think this deals with how human beings were originally created in Eden. If you go back and you read the narrative of Genesis in 1 and 2, and you find out that they walked with God, they were able to converse with Him. They were given responsibility by Him. They had a sinless marriage that took place. They were encouraged to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It was a time where none of that pain that we often experience in life is even evident. It's where we originally were before it was lost in Eden. I think some of this is seen, if you do research on the Hebrew words that are used in Genesis 2.25 for naked, and then again in Genesis 3.7 after the fall happens of the word naked. They're both derived from the same root word in the Hebrew, but they're different. And I, I believe that they're different on purpose. Uh, if anything, because of the context around them. In 2.25, you see that Adam and Eve were naked, but they were not ashamed. But in 3.7, you see that they begin scraping to cover themselves because they've experienced shame because they can now see themselves. That's the difference. There was a glory, I believe, that surrounded them. Some people believe it was the Holy Spirit that was over them at that time. All of sin, and that's a horrible thing, but it's a positive thing in the fact that it's now qualified you to be declared righteous by God in the halls of eternity because of what Christ Jesus has done. If you're guilty of sin, Christ has died for you. If you're familiar with the Bible and church life, but I don't think it's something we can easily run past as having right standing in his presence. It's not the fact that we don't deserve punishment. Of course we deserve punishment. It's the fact that the punishment that we deserved, that the judge has pronounced upon all guilty people, was fulfilled by another. We can't afford to belittle the cross. We can't afford to let that become mundane or routine. Is a pronouncement that is based solely on the provision of Christ. That's it. But it's enough, and it's not just enough, it's exceedingly abounding and more. The judge has exhibited undeserved favor upon us who were on the death row of eternity. When we look at things like John 3, 16, 17, 18, you see that, of course, God loved the world. He gave his son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. But it's interesting that those who are condemned are condemned already for one reason. They have not believed. Belief is the crux 
issue. Your time this week on the idea of our justification. Do some extra research on justification. Please get involved and look at all that is encompassed in justification. Because with justification, we are now placed in this accepted position because of Jesus. It needs to fill our minds, and we constantly need to be looking at our position if our condition is to amount to anything. Now, what do I mean by that? Our position is the place where we're accepted before God, and that place has a name. It's called in Christ. When you believe in Jesus, you are now put in Christ as your permanent position. When we talk about condition or practice, we talk about how we operate in life, how we um, are expressing ourselves or what is coming out of us. We would talk about sins, plural. In fact, let me show you a very interesting little uh, point here in, in a passage that we're all familiar with. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. Let's look at 8 and 9. I want to show you the differences here. Even John uses it this way. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Notice what it says. If we say that we have no sin, notice that that's singular. That's the sin nature, the sin principle. Uh, what Paul sometimes calls the old man. But notice, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. We're not accepting the truth about ourselves. The fact that we have sin as a, as a principle, as a nature, original sin residing in us. But notice the verse we're all familiar with. If we confess our sins, those acts that, are, that we commit, those offenses committed, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, again plural, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice that verse 9 deals with the idea of our position and the forgiveness of our sins, and it's a restoring of our fellowship with Him because it's all based upon our position. Our position in Christ, making it possible for the sins that we still commit today to still be put under righteousness and forgiven, and that all that we can't even remember to be taken care of. Sins we don't even know that we've committed. God is thorough enough to deal with them. The idea of eternal security and assurance in relation to the doctrine of justification. And just how important this is. The idea of us being declared righteous by God, this is a public declaration. Everybody knows in the unseen realm. This is the reason why spiritual warfare becomes an increased and heightened problem and temptations seem to be heightened for the believer in Christ. They still have the capacity to sin. We still have the capacity to sin. The sin nature in us is aroused when we're told not to do something. That's the thing that we want to do. Somebody says, don't go in the basement. Where do you find yourself wanting to go for no reason? In the basement. It's that type of thing. But because we are aroused towards sin in this situation, many times we can get blurry about our security in Christ. And I want to talk about the idea of why all this is put together. I don't know, for some reason I'm having trouble expressing myself in this point. Everything about our life rests on our position in Christ, fully accepted before God and declared righteous in eternity. If we've had poor doctrinal teaching on justification, this will lead to failure, where we're not looking to Christ, but instead we're looking at our conduct, our practice, our condition. And that is not the place where anything good is ever going on. In fact, I want to read to you this quote by Stanford I thought was interesting in the green letters. He says here, Assurance of justification results when we realize what our Father has done and said. It's never based on feelings. Someone has said, because God has spoken, I am sure. Because I am sure, I feel at rest. He says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth from Colossians 3.2. And it is here that the first major mistake in our Christian life is often made. In taking the position of justification by faith in the Lord Jesus, the new standing of life began to make a marked difference in our state or in our condition is what he means by that. Because of this, we shifted the basis of our assurance from eternal position 
to temporal condition. In other words, when we started focusing on our accepted position in Christ, we noticed that our lives started to produce holy things. And we noticed that the change in our lives was taking place and righteousness was being expressed through us. And because we noticed that going on, our eyes drifted from our accepted position in Christ to how we're doing in this life, how we're acting, how we're saying things. And that's the first mistake we often make. Because of this, we shifted our basis from our assurance in our eternal position to temporal condition. And we looked and felt and sounded saved, hence we were assured of our salvation. But then, one morning came the dawn, and we didn't look very saved. We didn't feel at all saved. And so we didn't sound saved either. All day long, everything and everybody went wrong, and by nightfall, we found ourselves at the end of our assurance. Thoroughly shaken, we determined to rectify matters the next day. On that day, we strove to look saved, to feel saved, and to sound saved. We kept trying and trying and trying is the idea. But because we were centered in our condition, all was wretched failure. We even began to question our salvation. If the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? In the Lord's time, the Comforter refocused our faith on our position by means of the Word, and our assurance of salvation was again anchored on the rock, Jesus Christ. With this assurance reestablished, our condition began to improve as a result of the position in which we stood by faith. We had learned our first important lesson, the necessity of knowing and abiding in our position. Apart from this abiding, there is nothing but frustration and failure. Now let's sum that up in very basic Kentucky terms. It ain't about how you're doing. It's about Jesus Christ being. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. And that is our position of acceptance before God. And all that we ever need to be is found in that position. Don't move your eyes from it. That's what it is to abide, to stick with your position in Christ. Now, when we start to drift and look at our condition, and we'll all do that, we'll all fail in that way, and then we'll get discouraged and we'll question our salvation. I did that for about four years, uh, and it was miserable. But you will start to doubt the very things that God has said is true about you, and he says that they're true because of Christ. And so I want you to think about the idea that justification is a public declaration. It is God declaring you as righteous. That righteousness has been credited to you. And if you could lose your salvation, would that not deny your union with Christ? You weren't as unified as you thought you were as the Bible tells you that you are. That's a problem. Because I don't know of anything that Jesus has been unified to that he was unified partially or haphazardly or he was just kind of halfway in. No, Jesus does a perfect job in everything. It would also remove your identification as a believer from Christ's death and life. There's no assurance there. If you can't be identified with Christ and that righteousness be declared to you, you have no grounds to stand on. So to say that you could lose your salvation keeps someone in perpetual infancy. What else is interesting is such a declaration can only be made apart from the presence of sin. Thank God that Jesus Christ is sinless for us, because that's not us. And so the payment of the believer's sin by the blood cannot be returned. People are having trouble returning toilet paper. Imagine trying to return the payment of the blood of Jesus Christ for your sins. God's customer service is not accepting that receipt. It's not going to happen. When we think about the idea that when we become believers in Christ, we're indwelt with the Spirit. We're sealed with the Spirit. The Spirit's a deposit. Can we be unsealed from the Spirit? Can the Spirit be withdrawn from us? It certainly brings a lot of question about the phrase eternal life. Salvation is not, or excuse me, justification is not a probationary period. You've been locked up because of the declaration of God. If his declaration is a public declaration of righteousness as far as we're concerned, 
if it's universal in its scope, we're not just uh, declared righteous in America. We're declared righteous regardless of where we go, either here on earth or in eternity. That's based on God's word, what he says about us being true. Would God go back on his word? He would not. Would he make such a declaration if he knew that it was only going to have limited endurance? He would not. If it were possible to lose your salvation, would that not bring great embarrassment upon God for him stepping forward and declaring us righteous to the world? Hopefully you will see some of the ramifications of the idea of some people's doubt of eternal security and and what that can bring. If you can lose your justification, what does that say about the unchangingness of God? Could you really trust the character of God in the fact that he is unchanging, that he never changes, that he's immutable? You couldn't trust that either. The issue of eternal security in relation to justification and righteousness is that the focus, again, it gets placed on our performance, how well we're doing in life. We look around at our life's condition. That starts to consume our thoughts. We start to get obsessed with our present attitude towards things. Maybe a turn of events has happened in your life and that got your eyes off of your accepted position in Christ. But where it needs to be is on God's Savior who was set forth at the right time. In fact, if you would look at your Romans paper real quick and you look at verse 20, look what it says, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. If we were denying the eternal security in our justification, that means that we've forgotten or we're dismissing or we're neglecting what Romans 3.20 tells us. If performance was necessary to keep God's righteousness, then we are seeking to stay justified by the law. This verse right here warns against that. No flesh will be justified. It's impossible. It's amazing to think that because of the perfect work of Jesus Christ and the person that he is, you and I are declared righteous. We're declared clean. Uh, It's interesting, when when I think about that word clean, I think about what the Bible says about lepers in the Old Testament, about who I truly am apart from Christ and then Christ coming into my life and all that he is being imparted to me and and all of how he is treated by the Father, I'm now treated likewise because of him. I'm a leper sitting in the best seat at the table. I'm being looked upon as if I were whole and that people were not running and screaming from me. It's not because my sin has been eradicated, but the fact that it's been covered by the Lamb of God. That's a beautiful thought. It's beautiful to think that God treats us like sons and daughters, fully accepted into his family, bringing nothing but the very sin we needed to be saved from and finding complete forgiveness and full acceptance because we've now been moved into a new location that is Christ Jesus our Lord. I hope your heart praises him this morning, that God does not hold sin against you that he sees you as he sees his son. Our thoughts that are out of control, our actions that seem to get away from us, our pet sins that we keep hidden, they are all under the banner of the blood of Christ. And you look upon us as free people. You look upon us as having been satisfied with the payment rendered by another. All that we deserved and all that we could never pay for has been washed away. Help us to ponder what it is to be declared righteous, that you have declared us righteous, and you declare us righteous because of Jesus our Lord. My mind so badly wants to try to wrap around what you've done for us, and I can't. But I know the proper response is for all of us to say thank you, to bring a heart of thankfulness and humility before you, and to glorify Jesus because of our position in your sight. And I pray, God, that the Spirit would impress that upon our hearts and minds now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.